Hello, and welcome to another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. My name is Andrei Matyshak, and I work as the Deputy Head of Foreign Desk in Slovak Davy Pravda, which, by the way, means truth, and it's not Russian Pravda. Franz Stefan Gardi is founder and chief executive officer of Gardi Consulting, and also a consulting senior fellow with the Institute for International Strategic Studies. With the other experts, he recently visited Ukraine's front lines, so I'm glad he agreed to discuss what he saw and what could be next for Ukraine's offensive and Russia's defense. Listen to our conversation. If you enjoy what I do, please support me on Coffee. For the link, see also the description of this episode. And now, up to the new debate. France, you just returned from Ukraine and you also saw the front lines. What was the aim of this research trip? We've been doing these sorts of research trips now for a couple of months. We are like an informal research group that got together at the beginning of this war just to share information, just to analyze the situation together and i think for us it's very important to be on the ground and conduct field research interview various commanders some military officers ngos enlisted personnel see what the topography the geography of the battlefield is like get a sense of the morale of troops try to get a better understanding of all these intangible factors that are contributing to an assessment of military power Overall, and so this trip was primarily done to get a better understanding of uh, Ukraine's uh, counteroffensive in south in the Subaricha region, but we also traveled to uh, the area around Bakhmut to get a sense of what's happening there. Overall, I think morale on the Ukrainian side is uh, quite quite high. The people who we usually interact with seem to be highly professional can also tell from how they conduct and go about their daily military routines and so forth that these are very well trained soldiers. I think the issue that we have recognized and that we've seen is twofold. First of all, there is a lack of training when it comes to integrating different military capabilities, different platforms and weapon systems at scale, what is usually known as uh, combined arms operations at higher levels that is, you know, beyond, let's say, 30 to 100 men operating with a couple, you know, with two or three tanks and two or three infantry fighting vehicles working together at a higher level in larger formations. And that, I think, is not so much just because the Ukrainians don't have really any experience in conducting large-scale military operations, but also because most Ukrainian partner nations, particularly in Europe, have no experience in conducting large-scale combat operations in a high-intensity operational environment, such as in Ukraine. And I think that's an issue, and, and that's definitely something that is where Ukraine could improve. This is something I wanted to ask you about. Are Ukrainians receiving the right training from the Western allies? I mean, are we able to train soldiers to the scenario in which they have to attack heavy with mind and fortified front lines? No Western army faced something like this for decades. You're absolutely right. And that would have been my additional point. 
the issue is even if they have a high proficiency in combined arms operations at scale, it doesn't guarantee that they're going to breach these Russian defenses. That's for sure. The only military that is really capable of these types of operations are the United States Armed Forces. But even there, if you talk to folks who have done these types of breaching operations, that is trying to clear minefields, breaking through fortified positions, layered defenses, and so forth, they've often failed also during military exercises. So this is quite usual. And then the question is, you know, can you adapt as a fighting force and find another way how to get through these defensive layers without directly assaulting them, or at least, you know, try to figure out a way, for example, a more genest form of combined arms operation that makes it really possible to breach through these defenses relatively quickly, because the idea is really that you want to push through these defenses quickly in order to catch the Russians, so to speak, off guard and prevent the Russians from really moving a lot of reserves in that area to seal off whatever breakthrough you have achieved. So it is a formidable military challenge. It's a challenge that I think every single European military would be struggling with. It would be also a challenge if you had additional air power, if you had F-16s and so forth. F-16s in this scenario are not really a panacea. You shouldn't forget that the Russians have very strong integrated air and missile defenses. These are fourth generation fighter jets. We don't really know should F-16 really be delivered, what kind of radar systems they're coming with, uh, what kind of missiles that they're coming with, and in what quantities they're being delivered. So these are all factors where we need to be careful about making overall judgments. What these people at the front line told us and what they are looking for at the moment, what they need is really man portable, demining, breaching equipment and stuff, stuff that they can use at the individual level to get through these minefields and um, attack these Russian fortifications. There weren't really much discussions about attack amps, about, you know, precision guided munitions and so forth, or F-16s. At the moment, it's really about trying to get through these defensive systems of the Russians and what equipment they would need to really bring this close fight to the Russians. Of course, it remains a war, an offensive that is dominated by artillery on both sides and that is really characterized by the use of heavy artillery fire. And this is, of course, horrible if you see what these people have to go through and what they have to endure. And it's really a, a testimony to these men that they're holding the front lines and they're advancing under this enormous, enormous destructive firepower raining down on them. And yeah, something that always keeps on impressing me. After a trip you wrote on Twitter, Ukrainian soldiers fighting on the front line he spoke to are all too aware that lack of progress is often more due to force employment, poor tactics, lack of coordination between units, bureaucratic red taping slash infighting, Soviet star thinking, etc. So how can Ukrainian armed forces improve internally? I think it is incrementally improving. There may have been a setback in a way because uh, reserve officers were called up last summer that were really called up because of the tremendous losses that the Ukrainian armed forces have sustained. And they were called up really very much still being in the Soviet mindset that is the Soviet Ukrainian military or the Soviet military of the 1980s where they were brought up and the Ukrainian army of and military of the 1990s. So um, there is a cultural clash going on. I think, you know, it's important to understand that this country is at war and fighting. And at the same time, it's really trying to restructure its entire armed forces. It's trying to introduce a new culture, a new force structure, a new doctrine and so forth. And I think there was this Roman poet who once said, you can always throw out human nature, the front window it has sort of a nasty habit of coming in uh, back in through the back door. That is, I think when things get tough, when things are really 
uh, difficult, you sort of by default go back to what you've learned initially, right? So what we're seeing now with this counteroffensive has been also a return to a fairly Soviet-style fighting idea that is really the massive use of ground-based fires that is self-propelled howitzers, you know, other forms of artillery, and really primarily trying to degrade the Russian defensive positions through firepower. And the Ukrainians have established uh, fire superiority when it comes to tube artillery, such as howitzers that I just mentioned, while the Russians are retaining uh, an advantage in rocket artillery and so forth. But it's really a fight that is still largely dominated by artillery. And what we're seeing now over the last 48 hours has been, for the first time in many weeks, a change in how the Ukrainians are attacking. They're again attacking in larger formations, at least in the Saboicha region. So what is happening? How do you see this? I think they're feeding, incrementally feeding in additional units into this fight. They're feeding in an additional core, 10th core, maybe some elements of 9th core, which was on the front line, is now being pulled back. And some of these units are maybe combat ineffective at this stage. And the Ukrainians are trying to push through Russian defenses. And it's unclear how well they're doing. I've heard reports that there are some um, advances, that they're doing well on some parts of the front and they're doing less well in other parts of the front, but it's too early. We just have to wait and see how this is developing. But for the first time in many weeks, we've seen mechanized formations, that is infantry fighting vehicles uh, in coordination with main battle tanks advancing and trying to attack Russian positions and so forth. So this is, it is different. And I think maybe in retrospect, this phase we are currently in at the end of July to let's see, you know, the next couple of weeks in August might've been, will be maybe considered quite important phases of this Ukrainian counteroffensive. But we'll, of course, only know about this in retrospect, right? But this is really, I think, that, you know, the Ukrainians are really throwing in a lot of additional forces right now, and they're really trying to force a decision at this moment. This doesn't mean that this offensive is going to be over anytime soon. It can extend into the fall. But I think this may very well be the decisive phase of this offensive. But of course, we only will notice in retrospect. You said that the offensive will continue into fall. But can we talk about some window of opportunity for the Ukrainians? I mean, do they need to breach at least some Russian defense lines before the winter? Is this a timeline? Well, it would be ideal for the Ukrainian forces, right, to breach through these Russian fences as quickly as possible and then really add, you know, push through as quickly as possible to really enable some kind of maneuver warfare where the Ukrainians would actually hold an advantage over the Russians. It's really too early to say that, though. I think what we can say is that they likely will have enough artillery munitions to continue this fight until the fall. And I think that's as much as I want to say about that. But of course, it's all about now trying to advance as much as possible into Russian-occupied territory, seize enough, you know, as much territory as possible, and attrit Russian forces as much as possible. That is, you know, disproportionately inflicting them higher casualties in terms of man and material than the own side is getting. And there seems to be some reports that attrition ratio, as it's called, is actually favorable for Ukraine, which is quite something considering that usually the attacker loses more man than the defender. But this is really just confined to certain sectors of the front line where I have some insights. I don't know the picture along the entire front. How realistic do you find that Ukraine can liberate a large part of its territory and will be able to isolate Crimea as it might be one of its aims? As many people are talking about it, 
not sure about you. Maybe you see this differently. It's very difficult to say, and I don't really want to want to make any predictions here. I think it's going to be a very tough fight. It's going to be very difficult for the Ukrainians to achieve these objectives. It's not impossible, but it's going to be difficult. And this offensive has been already going on for a couple of weeks with limited progress. I think we just have to wait and see where where the situation develops. But it's going to be a very tough fight. Ukraine will need continuous support from the rest. You mentioned that Ukrainian armed forces need many portable the mining equipment. They will need more ammo. Frankly, they need everything. Though the West still adds some constraints to the deployment of long-range artillery and missile systems. Do you still see the willingness to support Ukraine as long as it takes, as Western politicians like to claim? I believe that from a political perspective, the West is all in. Um, I think the West is committed to continuous support of the Ukrainian war effort. The problem that I foresee is much more at the structural level in terms of how our defense industries are really built and have been set up and just capacity shortages that we need to overcome in the short to medium term in the long term given that we are scaling up production in the west in europe and the united states and so forth i see less of an issue but in the short to medium term there might be you know an ammunition crunch for example that's also the reason why clustering munitions, I think it was quite important to deliver that to the Ukrainian armed forces, because that's one of the few munitions left that the United States at least could give in large quantities. The problem I see is that there is a lot that we have given Ukraine, and we just need to scale up our production capacity in, to, in order to sustain this fight, right? And this is something I think that that, that would be my main message here is um, you know, scale up production capacity, continue the political support of Ukraine, but also be realistic in what you can expect from the Ukrainian armed forces. As I said, this is an extremely difficult fight. This is something that no other military in the world really has any experience in. No European military has any experience of these types of operations at all. And so, you know, base your expectations of what you, the Ukrainians can achieve accordingly and make your policies based off that. But I think you can't do wrong with your continued support just in terms of ammunition, weapon systems, battlefield, reconnaissance, intelligence, surveillance, and so forth, uh, support. All this stuff that, that, you know, training Ukrainian forces and so forth, all of this is still desperately needed. So do you support the idea of giving Ukrainians the cluster ammunition? Well, I think from a military perspective, it makes sense. From an ethical perspective, moral perspective, it's a very tricky question, right? It really depends. You can see it from different from different perspectives, right? From a utilitarian or, you know, like perspective where, um, okay, this might be the lesser evil. It might do less damage in the long run to Ukraine than continuous Russian occupation, right? And what the Russians have done in the occupied territories from a tactical military perspective, there might be some incidences, clustering munitions is, is hurting their own forces and so forth. But I think ultimately it's a decision that the Ukrainians made. It's a decision that we need to accept and it's something that we just, you know, we just should get on in delivering these munitions if the Ukrainians think they're needed. Franz, last two questions concerning Russia. How do you assess the Russian defense? Maybe also from your dogs with Ukrainian soldiers. Well, what we've heard is uh, the repeated uh, refrain that we've heard along the front line is that the Russians are not stupid, right? That they're actually quite capable soldiers, that they're good on the defense, they have good situational awareness of what's happening on the battlefield, they are 
conserving their munitions, right? They are rationing ammo and they still have plenty of artillery pieces. They have obviously, as I said, an ammunition shortage, but they have enough most likely to at least slow down any Ukrainian advances. And there seems to be a general sense that morale has been low along the entire front line, but that has been sort of a constant since the outbreak of this war, right? Russian morale has never been that high in comparison to Ukrainian morale. Of course, it differs also what units you're talking about. We've heard cases about malnutrition on the Russian side, various diseases, cholera, and so forth. But overall, Russian defenses are holding. They're not collapsing. Of course, there's always a chance that this can happen. So I wouldn't rule it out entirely. It just seems less likely. I don't think they have that many reserves, frankly. But so far, the Russians also didn't have to commit any reserves to seal off any Ukrainian advances. So let's see. Yeah. And do you think that at this stage, Russia is only able to defend? Or it still has the resources to go for a larger offensive? Again, this depends on the outcome of this offensive and to what degree, what the state of the Russian armed forces will be at the end of this offensive, right? I'm skeptical that they are going to be able to mount any large-scale offensive operation until probably late fall, winter, winter of next year, excuse me, you know, new year. It's, it's difficult to assess, but I think they definitely are going to be offensive at some point again in the future. Um, if this war continues at the end, you know, every conflict is determined by the political level, so to speak. And, you know, this is where conflicts end and begin. But from a military perspective, I don't really foresee this conflict to be over this year. So I expect the Russians perhaps to go on the offensive. But at this stage, I feel Russian offensive potential has been quite exhausted. I think they're capable of attack and localized attacks. And also there are weak spots on the Ukrainian front line, most likely somewhere, which they can exploit. So whatever I say should not be in any way seen as predictive of any particular outcome. You know, there are a lot of known unknowns and intangible factors that makes it hard to predict how military conflicts will really develop. But in a steady state environment, when nothing much changes, I think the Russians will have a hard time conducting a large-scale offensive in the fall, and most likely will need to push back any offensive operations to winter. This was another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. Subscribe, listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and on the other platforms. If you enjoy what I do, please support me on Coffee. For the link, see also a description of this episode. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned.